Hi everyone, welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Hartman Institute in North America, and we're recording on February 22nd. So this week on the Jewish calendar, not quite yet in the secular calendar, we're marking an anniversary of one year since the great spate of cancellations began in the Jewish community and since our institutions pivoted into the new normal that would ultimately define our pandemic year. Purim is a good reminder of that. We were talking about this in our own family about Shabbat Zahor, the Shabbat before Purim, as maybe the last time that we were in in in-person synagogue services. In the Hartman Institute, the last program that we ran as an institution in person was a rabbinical student Shabbaton in Riverdale on this weekend a year ago. In fact, Stephanie and I hosted about 15 rabbinical students in our home for Friday night dinner that weekend. It seemed like a good idea at the time. In retrospect, probably not a great one. But we did cancel a major civics conference that was supposed to take place that weekend, where we would have had probably six or 700 people at Central Synagogue in New York. And we didn't know at the time, but canceling it was probably preventing a super spreader event. As a host of this podcast, I'm also reflecting on the fact that we started this podcast at basically the same time. And in retrospect, the pandemic wound up defining the agenda of this podcast for the first few months. There was actually a lot to talk about, but it also wound up being a good activity to launch over the course of this year since it could actually be executed from my basement. This episode of Identity Crisis will be one of several in which we're going to look back at this extraordinary year and discuss its impact on our Jewishness and on our communities. And this week, I want to talk in particular about individual communities, not the macroeconomic story of Jewish life. We will explore that later on, what has changed for the Jewish community, for the Jewish people, for our big institutions, but to look at particular institutions and communities, a synagogue, a Hillel, and a school talking to three leaders about the past year, what they've learned, how they and their communities have processed the pandemic, and what might be indefinitely different as a result of this crazy, sad, debilitating, destabilizing year. So with that, I'm really happy to have three people I feel very close to in different ways. Tilly Shemer is the executive director of the Hillel at the University of Michigan. Rabbi Barry Dove-Katz is the rabbi of the conservative synagogue out of Israel here in Riverdale. Stephanie Ives, a returning guest on Identity Crisis, is the head of school at Beit Rabban Day School in New York. Thanks, all of you, for being here. Barry, let me start with you. Take us back a year to the beginning of this pandemic, to the moment when there was so much uncertainty. None of us knew how long this was going to last. Give us a window, if you can, I'm going to ask all of you to do this, into your state of mind, if you can recall, a year ago, and to those first, the first set of adaptations that you started to think about or implement in terms of the community that you're holding here in Riverdale. Thanks. Thanks, Yehuda. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I actually spoke at that conference. I spoke on Saturday night to the students who were in Riverdale for Shabbat. And Riverdale closed down a little bit before some other communities in the United States. And it was a very intense time. I remember the week before we closed down when there were rumors that this might become something that we'd need to actually pay attention to. I called all my staff together And I said, I need you all to do something I never thought I would ask you to do, which is I need you to create a box with all of the things you would need to do your job from home. Computer passwords, earphones, books that you need, like whatever you need. I don't know how long it's going to be for. I imagine it won't be for so long, but I want you to each create a box that you could take if we say like tomorrow, come into work and get your box and go home. And I remember they were shocked. They were just shocked. They could not believe I was asking them that. And then I said, 
I also want you to understand that we're probably going to need to rip up all of our job descriptions, that our jobs are going to be very different in a few months, depending on how long this lasts. And it was a really hard conversation, but everybody made the box and everybody started thinking about their job descriptions and everyone's job description is very, very different right now. And that's what we did in the staff. And then in the shul, one of the first things that we did was we took inspiration from Parashat B'Shalach, where we read about Amalek and we read about Moshe's hands being held up in the air. And the, you know, the line there is Vayehi Yadav Emunah Ad Bohashamesh. You know, his hands were kind of uh, steadfast until the sun came up when we created these groups called Emunah groups, which were small heterogeneous groups of people in the synagogue whose only responsibility were to check in with one another once a week. And many of those groups are still going on and they really provided direct support for people and became the groups of people who bought food for people, who worried about people who weren't responding to phone calls, you know, and now they're helping people find vaccines. It was really the beginning was trying to set a system up that could deal with this new thing that we didn't quite know what it would look like. From the permanent to the temporary, Tilly, you run a community of people who are only there for a short period of time, students primarily, and who are away from home. So tell us a little bit about what it felt like when the pandemic was first kind of descending upon a college campus. And where also, I assume you operate a lot of the time, weirdly in loco parentis for so many students. I appreciate the question. And when I think back to where we were last year, just after Purim, the first thing that we looked at each other and we asked was, what are we going to do about Shabbat this week? For us, Shabbat is really this moment where we gather together collectively in our Hillel. We have anywhere from 200 to 500 students here for Shabbat dinner. And we would also support a couple of Shabbat dinners in the home every week. And we didn't want to let go of the primary way in which we're able to build and support community here. And so I remember that first week, we just said, okay, we're going to have everyone sign up and we turn this into a big Shabbat in the home this week. And then we figure out what will happen next week. And what will happen next week turned into what will happen for the rest of the year what we really have been able to do is keep community through Shabbat. The phrase from Ahad Ha'am of more than the Jewish people have kept Shabbat. Shabbat has kept the Jewish people. I think Shabbat has kept our Jewish community at Hillel at University of Michigan by being able to support that experience in the home while having everybody feel a part of community, even though we're not together. So that first week was really the beginning of how do we logistically switch from expecting students to come to us and for us to really shift our thinking and double down on what does it mean for us to bring Hillel and to bring these experiences to our students where they are, which essentially all year long has been in their homes across campus and even at times in their homes across the country. I want to come back to that. There's a very big idea there, a big shift for anyone who runs a Jewish institution, which is just the actual or conceptual geography of what are the boundaries of an institution. I'll just say I was blown away when I first saw that, Tilly, early in the pandemic of we're going to deliver Shabbat meals to your rooms because the whole premise of a lot of the work is how do you get students in? Just in preparation, I went online to your to your website, still doing it. 
this week. It's roasted red pepper soup for students at the University of Michigan who want to get Shabbat dinners. Let me just get Stephanie in the room here as well, just in full disclosure. I'm sure all of our listeners know this. Stephanie and I are married, and she's not just a head of school in the world, but has school for two of our children. Stephanie, tell us a little bit about where you were, because the schools have been also one of the major subplots of the pandemic. So take us back a year of what the set of considerations were around open closure and what holding a community looked like. Yeah, our last day of school last year was actually our Purim celebration. It was a Thursday. And a week earlier, I was so adamant that we would not close. Like, how ridiculous is it that we would close? What's going to happen? Everyone's not going to go to work. I remember being on the phone with a person from the Department of Health of New York City, and she said the same thing. She's like, come on get real. What do you think is going to happen here? You're going to close, then everyone has to close. And I was like, absolutely, you're right. That makes no sense, right? And that Wednesday, week later, really realizing we were going to close and deciding we were going to stay open for one more day because we had a bat mitzvah. And of course, now like that feels ridiculous that you would have stayed open for a child's bat mitzvah, but it was clear that her bat mitzvah was going to not be in shul that week. Shul just decided to not be in person. And we stayed open and we had a bat mitzvah that morning, which was one of the first of our school because we just opened a middle school. And we had a Purim carnival that day. And a year later, I'm sitting here and she, this child who had her bat mitzvah, has COVID right now. Her whole family is in quarantine. I just got off a call with that class to talk through how it feels. And everything is upside down and so different. And everything feels exactly the same in some ways of like a year ago. You know, today I feel like, We have made so many changes. We have figured out so many things. We have stretched ourselves in ways we couldn't have imagined. We've overcome things that we couldn't have imagined. We've bonded in ways we couldn't have imagined. And I also feel like, wow, I am just as overwhelmed and confused. And our community is just as heavy as it was a year ago. So I feel like that's really weighing on me today. And I'm just thinking as we transitioned, we did it overnight, like every school did. It was over a weekend. So the teachers came in that Friday. Thursday was our last day of school. Teachers came in that Friday. I had no idea that I had a teacher who had COVID and we didn't know things like you're not supposed to sing together. So we broadcasted our weekly assembly by having all the teachers in a room singing together, you know, and that was not a good idea in retrospect. And then by Monday morning, We were online with what became basically an iterative process of online learning. The one thing I look back at, that one decision that we made that weekend on Sunday, right before we opened school online, we decided, you know what, we should do tefillah together as a whole community from preschool through middle school. Let's just do that like for the first couple days. Anyways, this is probably going to only be two weeks. And we wound up praying together as a whole community through the end of the school year. And now every day that we're virtual or even days where we don't have school because it's a national holiday or something, we actually still have to be lot together online. And that has been remarkably anchoring to students and teachers and families. It was such a random decision. It defined this whole time for us. I want to ask each of you to reflect a little bit on, depending on where you sit as a communal or institutional leader, you're in the lives of your constituents. If you're a congregational rabbi, your pastoral work is baked in much more obviously than it might be as a head of school or as a head of a Hillel. But I think that, again, the absence of being in the same place and the fact that so much of this crisis is actually about embodied physical health 
and this language of social distancing has kind of brought us in much greater intimacy, I think, as leaders to the actual bodies of human beings who we are responsible for. So let's talk a little bit about that. What has changed? And maybe I'll start the other way around, Stephanie, with you, because I would suspect that knowing the physical health of all of the members of your own community, being on the receiving end of my illness test results is not something you sign up for when you're head of school. In fact, a year ago, you might have said that that was a level of invasive knowledge about the people that you're responsible for that none of us would have been comfortable with. So what's changed in terms of your sense of leadership as you think about the human beings, their physical health and well-being that you're responsible for, which includes students, teachers, parents, grandparents, what's changed for you over the course of this year? You know, it's funny. I actually don't think it's changed. It's more of like, and I've said this to my staff many times, this is not a totally different year. This is the most even more so year ever. It's like all the things that we know to be true are true in hyperdrive, right? So things like it's important as a leader of a community to be transparent, It's important to have difficult conversations and be direct. It's important to have one-on-one touches and not just manage a whole community. I can go on. It's important to have a bias towards action, try something and see if it works as opposed to planning for 20 years. You know, all those things are just on hyperdrive right now, right? So I would have told you a year ago, our community is based on pretty significant trust. I'm able to have conversations with parents that I think are unusual and There's a sort of mutual respect and trust, same with students and teachers. It never occurred to me that I would have conversations that were so invasive. It never occurred to me, A, that like, you know, people would be texting me and Yehuda, I love how you say, I suspect. I mean, you hear my texts and my phone calls at 11 or midnight with parents who say, I have a child who lost their sense of smell. And that happens. And that's really intense to know people's personal lives like that. It's also, you know, I said to the community early on, if you think we're being too strict, deal with it. If you think we're not being strict enough, call me. Be generous to everybody. Assume best intentions. If you're worried about anything, if you think anybody is violating any of our communal norms, because we're all in person and have been all year, like we're really dependent on each other, don't ignore it. Call me. Don't call anybody else. Don't talk to each other, better call me. And you know what people have? And that means you're calling people and saying, I'm sorry to have this conversation, but I understand that you might have had some people over your home. And can we talk about that? You know, you're having all sorts of really awkward conversations that really can only happen with a basis of trust. And also each time I pick up that call, I feel like I'm taking a massive risk and waiting for a relationship to collapse. And it never has actually. Right. Probably because the inverse of that for all of these families and all these individuals is the awareness that by being the chief public health officer in the school, you're enabling people to be back in school, right? That if they don't communicate transparently and directly with you, and again, this is a shift in leadership because you're no longer just an institutional service provider. You're basically holding together the possibility that all of the members of this community will continue to be able to be in community with one another. Can I just say one more thing about that? I have some baggage from my own day school experience. And one of the things I never wanted to be part of my life is like looking into other people's homes and policing their behaviors. Around my childhood, it was policing your Jewish behaviors, right? But part of the ethos of the institution I run is what you do at home does not have to be hidden. 
and does not have to be the same as what everyone else does at home. We can talk about this Jewishly and everyone is comfortable. And this year, I feel like I'm doing the thing of like, I think I saw you eating in an unhelshered restaurant and other people might think it's kosher. That's like the orthodoxy I grew up in. And of course, it has nothing to do with kosher. It has to do with your COVID behaviors. It feels horrible every time. And every time I get off the phone, I think like, thank God I live in a community with people who don't just immediately hang up on me, like engaged in that conversation. I think it is because of what you said. We're so deeply dependent on each other right now. Yeah, Tilly, when you think about your work and you introduced this with the shift from the goals being around getting students to be in the building to, at the beginning, probably helping students feel taken care of, right? Getting Shabbat dinner delivered. Probably for some students, it's because they need to have that piece of chicken. It won't feel like Shabbat if it isn't. But probably it was also students needed to be seen and needed to know that somebody cared about them. What does it look like in terms of your own leadership role as a Jewish educator, as a head of an institution, to be thinking much more atomically about each individual student. It's not, hey, success, we got 150 students to Shabbat dinner, or I don't know what the target number is at Michigan Hillel, but thinking of yourself as kind of responsible for the physical, spiritual, psychological health of your students. I think what's interesting this year is that we have not been anywhere near as focused on numbers as we have in the past. And I think that we really are focused on the health and well-being physically, emotionally, spiritually, of our students, how they're feeling socially. I think one of the hardest things for all of us, all of our staff this year, has been helping our students and at times even their parents navigate these tremendous feelings of loss of what they thought this year would look like for themselves or for their students and what it actually is looking like, that this is not a normal year in any way. And the expectations that they had are not the reality. And I would say that in any year, we are struggling on our campus with so many Jewish students. And we're worried about how we're reaching as many of them as we possibly can. We have around 5,000 Jewish undergrads on this campus. So this is a constant thought that we have of who are we reaching? Who are we not reaching? But I think this year we're much less focused on the large numbers, and we're much more focused on the mental health of our students, their social support networks, how we're able to make connections between our students, take them out on coffee dates or virtual coffee chats, and just help them feel connected to community while also remaining safe and socially distanced. And I'm seeing more one-on-one outreach, whether it's student to student or staff to student more feedback groups and focus groups of ours to make sure that we're reaching the students where they are and trying to meet their needs. We've done a lot more sending packages to our students' homes than ever before. A winter warm-up package, a freshman welcome back to second semester mug with chocolate inside. All of these are just these touch points in order for us to let our student community know that we're thinking about them, that we're here for them. And I think the other way in which our students have been able to gather, whether it's in their home or in small groups, albeit it doesn't have the excitement of the large number and the large groups together, but being able to bring them together in smaller gatherings has actually helped facilitate their friendships a little bit more, 
help them even get deeper in terms of some of the classes that we're still able to do online in these small cohorts. They feel like they're able to be in these intimate spaces together with one of our Hillel staff as their educators and feel like they have a sense of connection to one another, a sense of a connection to a staff person guiding them through a class and feel like they have somebody who is looking out for them. I think for us, the biggest challenge still is who are we missing in all of this? Who's falling through the cracks? Barry, you said something to me months ago. I don't know if you'll remember. You told me something that was very powerful, that there were ways in which your leadership as a rabbi in a community in the pandemic was not vastly different than prior to the pandemic. Of course, the conditions are catastrophic and terrible, but that your core construct of what it meant to be a rabbi was actually playing out. The work was essentially the same, but manifesting differently. Can you go a little deeper on that? Because it was so insightful to me. And it was so different from the way that so much of the public conversation around Jewish leaders and everything we had to do different. I'd love for our listeners to, to hear that a little bit more. Sure. As a rabbi, I've always really built my rabbinate around relationships. People let me into their lives at the most vulnerable moments, right? When someone is leaving the world, when Babies are coming into the world as families are celebrating different things along the way. So at that level, this pandemic was more of the same. Those needs have just been ramped up. There's so many more needs. I think what's been challenging is that I can't see anybody. So the ways in which I can check in on people in sort of low-level ways, right, without kiddish, it's really hard to know what's going on with literally hundreds of people in my community, right? Kiddush is a really effective way of just sort of checking in with people and knowing who needs the follow-up during the week. And I don't have that. I don't have Kiddush. I don't have Hebrew school drop-off. I don't have seeing people on the street, right, or in local businesses. So I think that that's been really hard to have a rabbinate based on relationships and have to move all relationships into planned moments, right? Like, I'm going to call you, I'm going to reach out to you, there's going to be this program. So I think that's been a challenge of maintaining the same work, but essentially the work is the same. And I think that one of the things that's been really eye-opening is the ways in which we've been invited into people's lives in even more intimate ways. I already felt like I was really, you know, in Kodesh HaKodeshim of people's inner lives. And suddenly... At Pesach time last year, we were worried who would have enough to eat during Pesach, right? Would people have food in their houses? All the seniors who couldn't get out, like how could we make sure that they had food delivered to them? We started to have to think about who's lost their job and who is suffering because of that in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. I got this incredible donation from a sensitive family who said, we know that there's people who've lost their jobs. Here's money. Go find those people and support them and what they need. You know, which parents are under incredible stress because they're in quarantine and trying to deal with kids and trying to keep their professional lives going, which older people are just feeling so, so lonely, hearing stories of people saying, I literally have not seen another human being in four or five months and what that's been like. And then, of course, who's sick and who needs that kind of support? So it is like what I was doing before. It's about relationships. It's about being invited into really intimate connection with people. But it's just all of that and more in a deeper. I didn't think it was possible to be more intimate, but I think it is 
a much more intimate way. There's no comparison to this, but the struggle that I've felt over this year in terms of just running an organization, you know, about 40 staff around the country, the amount of stuff you pick up just by walking around the office, dropping you know, people, especially a national organization. We were talking to one of our producers, Alex, on the call beforehand that Alex and I have never met in person. We work well together, but there's so much that's missed in the interstitial stuff. I remember a friend and mentor of ours who had reached a senior position of leadership in his company. You know, Stephanie and I asked him years ago, well, how does he spend his time now having built this really successful business? And he said, I walk around and kiss the mezuzahs, by which he meant he stops in everybody's office and sits down and asks them what they're working on and what they're thinking about. And essentially on the corporate side of Jewish communal life as well, the inability to just stop by and see how people are doing, you just lose so much in terms of the texture of those relationships. If I could just add, I think there's also an extreme sadness in losing that. Like the other thing I, you know, have worked really hard as a rabbi is to create a Shabbat morning experience that has lots of options for people, for adults, for kids, for older people, for people with different connections to Jewish life. And people are constantly coming and going. And I realized a couple months in that it just made me really like personally sad to not have that in my life. And I think that it's one of the many things that I think rabbis and I'm sure other professionals have had to deal with is just their own personal sadness. Besides not being able to do my job like I used to do in the same way or having the same tools, it's just a huge loss to not have that charge every week of seeing a full shul, of speaking to people, of connecting with people in that way. In a year of big challenges, it's important to come back to big ideas. The kinds of ideas that inspire. Ideas that start conversations. Ideas that both speak powerfully to the moment and help us envision a better world. That's why the Shalom Hartman Institute is so proud to introduce you to Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. A quarterly journal being launched this spring, available both in print and online. The first issue tackles current events and systemic challenges alike, including whatever happened to Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and the communal implications of life in an extended pandemic. As a listener to this podcast, you're invited to claim your free copy of the inaugural edition of Sources. To get it delivered to your door or to your inbox, visit sourcesjournal.org today. Once again, that's sourcesjournal.org. Thank you. Can I ask, I'll put you on the spot, Barry, and then I'm going to ask Tilly the same question. I'm curious about your personal Jewishness and all this, because, you know, every davening, every prayer service, every Shabbat, you're working. The rabbis are the ones who work on Shabbat. What has Shabbat and your own Jewish life felt like? We know the losses, obviously, right? And we've been talking about the losses. What has it felt like to not race over to the shul at all times? And it's not quite the same as turning on a Zoom meeting and then being able to turn it off. What have you learned even about your own Jewish life and practice throughout this year? Yeah, I think in terms of my own Jewish life, I think there's certain things that have kind of receded and certain things that have come to the fore. So it's hard to daven by yourself. You know, it's hard to daven without the music of everyone singing together and the harmonies and just the just the people in the room. Barovam is really a big part of my Jewish identity. So it's hard to daven. On the other hand, 
Over the summer, it was really sweet to go out to the backyard and daven Kabbalat Shabbat, looking at the beautiful tree in the backyard with a garden that I spent the summer planting because there was really not much else to do. And so there was something really sweet about that and really calming and really beautiful about that. I've also found that studying has been very intense. Texts have sort of jumped out as speaking to me, speaking to this moment in a way that occasionally they did in the past, but now it feels like every line of davening has something that's speaking to this moment. Stories that I've read before Midrashim suddenly just feel so applicable and feel like they have these lessons that are so important. And it's also really hard not to have guests on Shabbat. It's lovely to have intimate family meals, and it's also a loss to not have those other people around the table. What about for you, Tilly? I mean, this has been an eventful year for you also since you got married this year, but you usually, as a Hillel director, are also a symbolic figure in terms of your own Jewishness. So I wonder if you could speak about that as well. Yeah, so I got married this summer in the middle of this pandemic, and my wife and I have been able to be together for every Shabbat and every holiday in ways that I don't think that we could have ever done this when we were stretched by our Hillel obligations. So while I miss my main touch point with the students of greeting these students on Friday night as they come into the building and sitting with them and having conversations, I've been able to, with my wife, create new traditions for ourselves and bring family to our table through Zoom quite consistently and even FaceTime into some students' homes rather than have that time around the table at Hillel, but for the most part, really focus on my own Shabbat experience. And so it's taught me a lot about the importance of taking this time for myself Jewishly and a recharge for myself as a Jewish professional and not just giving of myself Jewishly to my students during Shabbat and holidays. And I think that ultimately we're going to look back at this time and really be grateful for the traditions that we started, that we really created for ourselves within this luxury of time that we've had. And perhaps we'll even miss preserving this for ourselves in the future. But I think the other piece that has really been interesting is sharing these new traditions in conversations with my students who are also now for the first time, figuring out how to host Shabbat dinner for themselves and create these traditions for themselves supported by our Hillel. So just like for us, I'm seeing how empowering and memory building this experience is for our students to build this confidence to host their peers or their roommates in their homes for Shabbat. And I really do feel much more confident that these students that are hosting Shabbat dinner for themselves, they're going to go on to do that for the rest of their lives, as opposed to the students who always knew how to show up to Hillel for a free meal for Shabbat. So just as I'm creating these memories and I'm creating these traditions, I'm seeing our students are doing the same thing. And it's been such a pleasure to engage in this conversation with them and share challah recipes, and even share some cookbooks, some Israeli cookbooks, that they can start to add to their own library, their Jewish library of what kind of home they want to create in the future. 
So Stephanie, you're a little bit of an outlier in that the school has been open since September and took a tremendous amount of lifting, but in some ways there's more consistently similar experience for the students than before. And also the calculus of your Jewish life is still representative in certain ways relative to the students, but we still are able to have Shabbat. So I want to switch a little bit to something that Tilly opened the door on, which is what stays? What has emerged as part of your leadership within the context of a school that Maybe it's something that the pandemic taught us to do this differently or opened up a vista of something or maybe just irrevocably changed the culture of the school or your leadership. What's one or two things that you think will remain beyond? And then I want to hear from Tilly and Barry on the same question as well. I think the biggest thing that has changed, again, is like even more so, it's like putting into action some of the things that we already believed in, but actually living them. So I've always felt and we've always as a school subscribed to the idea that education is really a partnership between a family and a student and teachers and that we're educating in a full community, right? In conversation with each other in each direction and the teachers are learning, and the students are learning and the parents are learning and it's all in partnership, right? But actually schools are pretty insular places. If you think about it, you know, you drop off your child in the morning, you take them out. And most people don't really drop off their children. Somebody else drops them off. Somebody else picks them up. And what happens during the day is really different than what happens on the weekends or in the evenings. And they don't cross over that much. When you have events at night, they're at school, they're not at your home, etc. And when you're running a school in Manhattan, Jewish life is so rich out of the walls of the school. Everyone's affiliated with multiple other institutions. You don't have to be a full service Jewish community. And this year, it really has felt like, obviously, the lines between home and school are much more blurred. We spent months teaching and learning together when kids were in their homes and looking into your home, looking into your teacher's home. But even after that, now that we've been back since September, all of our programs, all of our communal experiences, whether they are communal experiences where we would have invited parents or they're just communal experiences where you would have brought the school together but never invited parents, they have all become virtual. And they're just now all open to parents, to grandparents, to aunts and uncles, to people, to alumni. And it really does feel like a communal experience almost every day. We have to keep that. We absolutely have to keep that. We've had to reimagine some things that are things that we would never have thought to reimagine because we think of them as so core to our identity. Every year we have a Torah reading ceremony, the second graders, instead of just sort of getting their humashim, their Torahs, as most kids do in second grade, they actually learn to chant and they read from a scroll and parents and Rebbe Katz, et cetera, gets invited by my daughter, comes to school. And, you know, it's about a hundred people. We have a small school, but a hundred visitors. This year, we had to reimagine the whole thing. We couldn't do it in person. It was just the kids. And we did it virtually. And we had hundreds of people, hundreds of people from all over the world involved. And we were able to sort of separate the kiddish fun part from the ceremony part. And we did that at home at night. So everyone had a package at home. We had a celebratory thing that was like sort of based in your home with parents really holding that in partnership with the school. And it just felt much more 360 as an education should be. It should come from every direction. And I have many examples of that. And I want to keep that. We absolutely have to keep that. The involvement of grandparents in the intergenerational piece to the education this year is so deep to education, to educational outcomes, to awareness, to wonder, to a million different things, to identity. 
And we have had grandparents almost daily as part of our community, which never would have happened otherwise. So dramatically expanding the parameters of community access to some of the work of the school. And I think there's a big idea here from what you indicated about what stays in Jewish education as possible. We didn't talk today mostly about the switch to online. I'm happy we didn't. There's been plenty of talk about that stuff. But I think that some version of using online tools to now broaden the parameters of community is a huge idea. And I'll just say personally, I am never going back in person to parent-teacher conferences at the physical school. It's like an easy win to be able to do from home. Tilly, what about for you? What's something that you think you take out of this year, this experience that remains a part of your leadership indefinitely? I think that there are a few things. I think certainly the decentralized model of Hillel, I think that we're going to wind up in some sort of hybrid, but I think that there is going to be much more in the home experiences and empowering students in their home in ways that we didn't feel as deeply invested in beforehand. And so I imagine that we're going to see a return of students who want to have that communal experience in Hillel while also supporting the experience of students hosting in their own homes. And I hope that it doesn't end at Shabbat meals or holiday meals. I would really love for us to see more creative home salon kind of events where students are feeling like they can do more than just cook together, although I love when they cook together, but do more than that and really think about how they can enrich their community. So many of our students have chosen to live with Jewish roommates, have chosen fraternities and sororities that are predominantly Jewish, and then they wind up having a social experience devoid of these other experiences. And this year we have seen a lot of those houses really be able to incorporate a lot more Jewish life and Jewish ritual and Jewish learning together and sharing that also with their non-Jewish roommates in really fun ways, which we've loved all year. So I imagine the online cooking classes, the Zooming, the Israeli celebrity chef teaching us from his farm in Israel, that's something that I hope will continue. The other thing that I thought was really interesting during high holidays this year is that because we were not able to gather in the traditional ways that we've gathered in the past, we really thought very differently about how to bring the experience of coming together in communal prayer or listening to the shofar out to the public square, which I know Hartman thinks about a lot. And what was interesting was I think that if we were not in this particular moment, we would have had a very serious conversation about security for our synagogues and how to really protect ourselves inside the walls of our institution. And I think one thing that was a positive result of being pushed outside because we could gather in larger numbers outside, we saw Rosh Hashanah services outside. We had shofar blowing all over campus outside of Hillel and it brought our rituals out to a broader campus community in a very safe way. And I think that it was out of necessity this year, but I hope that in the future, we're going to think about how do we bring these rituals out to the public square, to campus, to a broader community where we're able to celebrate them publicly that will attract more Jewish students 
who wouldn't be able to take the time out to go to Hillel, but would also bring the interest of people who are just passing by and seeing these rituals happen in very public ways. And then the last that I don't know how it's going to remain, but I'm noticing in particular amongst our freshman students, but amongst our students in general, a tremendous sense of appreciation and gratitude for everything that we are able to do together in community. And I think that we've taken this for granted for so many years. And I'm very curious to see how that influences them as emerging leaders and what they take from this time of really being appreciative and grateful for the times where they can gather together and be in community together. So I'm curious what that's going to look like in the future. Barry, I know how desperate you are to get back to shul. I'll say on the other side, how desperate I am to just sit and listen to a sermon in shul. I know you could tell us all the things you want to go back to, but what are the things that you think will stay with you, with your leadership, with your community as a result of this year? Yeah, so many of the things that Tilly and Stephanie spoke about really resonated for me. I think one thing is that changing the definition of where shul happens before the holidays, I was feeling very frustrated that I wasn't seeing people. And I just decided during LL I was going to stand on street corners in our neighborhood and I'd advertise the street corners and just see who showed up. And hundreds of people showed up just to hear the shofar. It was short. It was sweet. And hundreds of people just came out of their houses, were hanging from their porches on their balconies. And I think doing things like that, we had a community-wide event where we had rabbis of different synagogues give sermons on street corners over Thanksgiving weekend. This weekend, we're sending home yeast and personalized bottles of grape juice with the Mishloach Manot so people can make challah and post their pictures online. So I think just that busting out of the notion that you come to Shul to do the Jewish thing, but really taking things that we've done in bits and pieces, but really thinking in what ways are the walls keeping us from really creating a rich Jewish experience for people. As much as I appreciate you wanting to come to Shul and hear a sermon in Shul, one of the things I realized was that I thought that if I spoke to 200 people, that I was speaking to the world, you know, speaking to my community. And one of the things that having that vehicle blocked for me taught me was that those sermons didn't really reach everybody and that I really need to be thoughtful about how we're messaging specific messages around initiatives, but around Jewish values in ways that reach people who are not necessarily in the room, right? So the person who's at the kids' service isn't in the room hearing my sermon. And so we started this Shabbat channel where every week there's a Dvar Torah from someone in the synagogue. Sometimes it's me. And an emerging or emerged Jewish musician offers some musical selection. And that's reaching hundreds of houses more than would have heard my specific sermon. So thinking about how am I messaging what it is that's important to me, not only on Saturday morning, but in all of those ways, something I've always thought about, but it's really quite clear to me that we have to do better around that. And the last thing is just the durability and flexibility of our rituals. What Jews do around death held up. Transferring Shiva to a Zoom you lost a lot. You lost being able to give a hug. You lost saying, I'm going to bring you a cup of coffee. You lost that human touch. 
On the other hand, people got it. People got and appreciated the ability to come together and share stories. And I imagine that for years, we're going to talk about their shiva going to be this time and this time and this time. And this is the time when the Zoom shiva is going to happen so that friends and family from around the world can come. Bar bat mitzvah held up even when now we have limited numbers of people in synagogues. So we're able to have them in shul. But even when we were doing a Saturday night kid does what they studied, it felt holy. It felt like something was happening for that kid. Something was happening for that family. They set up their makeshift bima in their living room and got their Zoom stuff set up and, and decorated their makeshift bima with pictures of family members who couldn't be there and mementos from family members who had passed away. And like that sense of holiness did actually translate. And I think that people are going to be looking for ways to both build on that durability, but also see the flex and, and appreciate the flex, even when they can go back to the regularly scheduled. Well, I want to say two things. First is that the last few episodes of Identity Crisis have been on things like the IRA definition of anti-Semitism or other kind of cosmic Jewish political issues. And one of the things I'm grateful for of this conversation is A, not to talk about anti-Semitism, but B, more importantly, to be reminded that the center of gravity for Jewish life has always been home, shul, community, the places we gather. That's the center of gravity. And that actually, in many ways, those big political questions they're important, but they're a distraction from the center of gravity of the types of communities and institutions you all lead. But let me also just take editorial license to say one other thing here, which is the rabbis have the term that they use in reference to the mitzvot, to the obligations around burying the dead, to refer to them as chesed shel emet, a kind of act of loving kindness, which is deeply true in part because those for whom we do those mitzvot, and I know, Barry, how many funerals you've done this year and so many other rabbis, more than a person should do in a career, those types of mitzvot cannot be thanked by the people for whom you're doing them. So it's a true loving kindness because it can never fully be acknowledged by the person for whom you're doing those loving kindnesses. So I just want to add here today as the self-appointed commissioner of Jewish Inside Baseball to all of you and to the rabbis out there, the Jewish day school teachers, the Hebrew school teachers, the JCC staff, the communal leaders to just express my and our gratitude for the work that you've done. A couple of you said you were acknowledged. People saw and thanked what you're doing, but I'm not sure it was nearly enough. And I'm not sure it's nearly understood enough in big Jewish discussions about the Jewish communal economy, how much, so much of what our community relies on is the kindness and sincerity of individuals who do this work for the right reasons. With that, I want to thank you all for listening to our show. I want to thank our special guests, Stephanie Ives, Tilly Schemmer, and Rabbi Barry Dove Katz. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David Svi Kalman and Alex Dillon and edited by Alex Dillon with research support from Sam Hainback, assistance from Miri Miller, and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show, and you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Afrelich and Purim. Thanks for listening.